Heavenly Father, as we now come to, we've heard your word, and so we pray that now it would sink deeply, that it would bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Thank you, Trish. These words are perhaps the most arguably, pardon, the most compelling words in James. They might also be the most controversial words in James. And uh, the first verse there shows us why. He asks these questions. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? In terms of trying to understand James as a whole, this here is the hinge on which James turns, if you will. And so it helps us understand where James has come from and it's going to help us understand where James is going to. And by the way, there's someone here represents many of those to whom James was writing to, who claimed to have a faith and yet showed little evidence of it in the way in which they lived. And here James calls it as he sees it, um, such faith is counterfeit. Such faith is counterfeit. It is a mere imitation of the real thing. Now this raises all sorts of questions. And so he uses examples to illustrate his point. His first example of what a counterfeit faith may look like is there in verses 15 and 16. He, he says, look, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, look, go in peace, keep warm and, and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? I mean, clearly this situation calls for more than mere platitudes, doesn't it? And yet mere platitudes is all that this brother or sister receives. Elsewhere, actually, we read these words, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Genuine faith is not wishing someone well while doing nothing to help them. Genuine faith is not um, is not sentimental, not merely sentimental. We are called to put our money where our mouths are because James makes a point that in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Deedless Christianity is dead Christianity. And yet James imagines someone saying, look, you have faith, I have deeds. Or the other way around. You have deeds, I've got faith. The implication being that one can have one and not the other. But James insists, no, the two are always found together. And so one can actually see genuine faith. One can actually see genuine faith. And so we've got a great example of this from the life of Jesus. And so if you recall that story of where the group of men wanted to have their paralysed friend brought to Jesus, they wanted to bring their paralysed friend to Jesus for him to heal him. But when they arrived, there was no room, was there? And so they tried to get in, but they couldn't. So they actually went up onto the roof, flat roof, and they dug a hole and lowered their friend down in front, right in front of Jesus. Pay attention to what Mark writes. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, son, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus see? 
their faith. Their faith was seeable. But James doesn't stop there. To those who believe that faith is simply what you think and not what you do, James points out in verse 19 that even the demons believe there is one God. Right? Even the demons are not atheists. See, claiming to be a Christian is, is easy, right? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Vladimir Putin wears a cross around his neck and claims to be a Christian. It's easy to claim to be a Christian. It's, it's as easy as reciting the creed every now and then or, or ticking a box every now and then on the census. But the proof is in the pudding. It is all for nothing if it makes no actual difference to the way in which we live. No, such faith cannot save. Faith is not just what you think. Faith is what you think and what you do. One of you have heard that classic story of Charles Blondin. Blondin was a French tightrope Walker, who in 1859, so this is, is going back now a little while, planned to walk across Niagara Falls. And when he arrived, crowds lined the, the, both sides of Niagara Falls, the Canadian side and the American side. And he planned to tightrope across it. Thousands of people showed up to th- see this unbelievable feat. And sure enough, Blondin, inch by inch, made his way across to the other side and he was cheered. In fact, he did it again and again. He went back and forth, back and forth. And then he did it pushing a wheelbarrow full of rocks back and forth, back and forth. And the crowd was, was cheering him along. But then he stopped and he raised the stakes. He stopped in front of the crowd and he asked, look, how many of you believe I could take one of you and put you in this wheelbarrow and roll you across? And they all shouted, yeah, we believe. So he, he dumps out the rocks and says, well, if you believe, get in. Now, no one took up his, his offer, okay? Uh, it's, it's a nice story, isn't it? But the point is that we use words such as belief. We use words such as faith to refer to what we think, right? Culturally, that's, that's how we use those words. But in the Bible, it refers to what you think and what you do, And did you notice that even the demons were not unmoved by their belief in God? Even the demons were not unmoved. They shudder. They shudder. Now, of course, Christians, we don't need to fear God in the same way the demons do. But we ought to be moved by our faith in him. We ought to be moved by our faith in him. There are plenty of people, including the demons, who can say, I believe And yet, as James says, faith without deeds is useless. And he goes on to prove it by by providing uh, two examples of genuine faith. The first witness he calls upon is Abraham. Now, what you have to understand about Abraham is he's just not a man of faith. Abraham's the man. He's, he's the man of faith. He is the model man of faith. And James makes his point there. Look, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God And it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. 
Now, if you are semi-familiar with the life of Abraham, you will see that Abraham is actually recalling and relating two separate events in the life of Abraham. The first moment he considers occurs in Genesis 15, where although Abraham and Sarah were elderly, although they were childless, God promised him a son and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we're told that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The second moment that uh, James recalls and relates occurs years later when this Isaac is a boy and he is called to sacrifice him. Are you familiar with that story in Genesis 22? Now, in the end, he didn't need to. Um, God provided an animal as a substitute, but the point is that Abraham was willing to obey. Now, can you see how James is relating these two moments in Abraham's life? The kind of faith that had been credited to Abraham back in Genesis 15, years before in Genesis 15, produced this active obedience to God in Genesis 22. His faith and his actions are working together. His actions completed his faith. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham, he was declared righteous. It's a language that Paul picks up on. He was declared righteous in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22, he is considered righteous by what he did. Which brings James to conclude in verse 24. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, I hope that you're getting the sense by now that this may not be the case. However, on the surface, right, it appears as if we have a problem on our hands. It appears like James is contradicting someone like Paul, who, for example, in Romans 3 writes this, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, right? The two seem diametrically opposed over what is arguably the core belief of Christianity. How is one justified? How is one declared right before God? These two seem to be on different pages. And we need to wrestle with this. But the first step is actually to take a step back and just observe the playing field. So both Paul, for example, in Romans, and James, they weren't writing essays, right? They were writing letters. They were writing letters to churches. And so the problems that those churches were facing, those are the problems that they were trying to address as they wrote to them. And so Paul wrote to churches where people were tempted to trust in their deeds for salvation. James wrote to people who were tempted to trust in their deedless faith for salvation. See that? But take a closer look with me at James 2.24. And if you're one to highlight things in your Bible, then you might want to highlight this. You see that a person is considered righteous 
but what they do and not by faith alone. Now we easily skip over those first couple of words there. And yet they are significant, important in understanding what James is and isn't saying. And so James is not talking about how someone is justified. He is talking about how you see, how you can tell that someone is truly justified. And so if Christians have often summarised it, Paul shows us that we are saved by faith alone. James shows us that the faith that saves is never alone. They're not contradictory, they're actually complementary. James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. His point rather is a genuine faith. Genuine faith will inevitably be characterised by works. The root of faith is going to produce the fruit of works. So anyone can claim to be trusting in Christ... But the real evidence is seen in how their faith moves them to obey, moves them to respond. It's what Paul calls in Romans 1, the obedience that comes from faith. Which brings us to James's second witness here, Rahab the prostitute. Once again, it's one of those stories that you may well be familiar with. We come across Rahab early in the book of Joshua. The Israelites are sort of poised to enter the promised land, but they're going to need to take the fortified city of Jericho first. And so Joshua dispatches two spies to sort of case the joint. And during their reconnaissance, they come across Rahab. And Rahab is one of many in Jericho who had heard of God and of what he had done in fulfilling his promises to his people. And she truly believes that their God is the God. And because she believes, she acts. She demonstrates, she proves her faith by what she does. And what does she do? Well, once the alarm is sounded, she takes in the spies hides them, she covers for them and helps them escape. It's actually incredibly risky, incredibly risky thing for her to have done. But it was not a random act of kindness. It was an act of faith. And the James has used two conspicuously different examples in Abraham and in Rahab, is just worth appreciating for a moment. Rahab could not be any more different than Abraham. He was a Jewish man. She was a Gentile woman. He was rich. She was poor. He was a patriarch. She was a prostitute. And yet they both illustrate the same point, and that is that real faith works. Real faith works and it comes in all shapes and sizes. 
If we, if we dwell on these words in James, this, this passage really does turn us inside out, doesn't it? And so those questions that he poses in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone <clears throat> claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Those questions, they are designed to shock us out of our nominalism, to shock us out of our apathy, to shock us perhaps even out of our hypocrisy. And so in light of these words in James, we're to ask ourselves some hard questions, right, as to whether our faith is genuine or is it just a mere imitation of the real thing? And we might even need the help of trusted brothers and sisters to point out those areas in our lives where there is a discrepancy between what we think, what we say we believe and what we do. Genuine faith is not just what you think, but it is what you think and do. And if you think about it, all those examples in which James has just shared, all those examples indicate that costly faith, genuine faith is going to be costly. Genuine faith is going to be costly. Think about those examples and the cost that they were called to make. But friends, it is, it is nothing compared with the cost that he has paid for us. And so I want to acknowledge that there's a real danger Right? There's a real danger having read these words that Christians, particularly Christians with tender consciences, like if you've got a really tender conscience. There's another problem, by the way, if you've got a really complacent conscience. But if you've got a really tender conscience, there's a real danger that you can walk away from this evening in despair. That's not what James wants you to walk away in. James wants to convict you, Yes. But James does not want to condemn you. Right? The gospel says that Christians, while we might be convicted of sin, we're not condemned of sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, James wants you, the whole purpose to his writing, he wants you to become a more whole Christian. He wants you to become a more complete Christian. Someone who's less double-minded and is following Christ with all their energies. And so perhaps we do need to pray, look, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. However, you might rightly come to conclude, right, having read these verses, having dwelled upon them, actually maybe... Maybe I'm not a Christian. That's a realistic possibility after reading a passage such as this. Being confronted with the call that Jesus makes. But whether God's word convicts us right, or, or, or condemns us, we must keep in our minds and our hearts where James is going in all of this. It's why it's, it's just so helpful 
to preach through a book as opposed to picking a passage here and a passage there. Because very shortly, in just a few sentences' time, James is going to write, look, we all stumble in many ways. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. And so we all need to walk away with this, that ultimately our hope is not in our ability to keep God's commands, but rather in the grace of the one who gave those commands. But more on that in a couple of weeks' time. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does convict us. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And yet we pray in our conviction we might turn to Christ who has paid the price. And may your grace motivate us to live lives worthy of the calling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.